Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, board games, tabletop war games, and on occasion, collectible card games. Today, we're talking about Keyforge. I'm your host. My name is Troy. My pronouns are he, him. With me, as always, my co-host. And I'm Ed. Always Ed. My pronouns are they and them. I don't, I don't have a joke today. And for the first time ever, we have a guest. Guest, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Lewis. Pronouns are he, him. Um, I'm here because I've known Troy and Ed for a very, very long time. And they introduced me to Keyforge, the subject of today's podcast. Yes, we did. And you're—I think you play more of it than we do at this point. I have played a lot of Keyforge. Yes, <laughs> the best game ever made. But before we start talking about Keyforge and what it is and why you would want to forage keys in a game store, we have a segment we like to call the Weekend Hobby. So, Ed, you done anything this week for hobby-related activities? It's been relatively uneventful. I'm still doing a lot of traveling, so I haven't done any painting. I did receive my box for Strontium Dog, which is surprisingly heavy for such a small box. So that will eventually get added to the pile of shame. I think that's because all the models are made of Strontium. Yeah, that works. In that case, I should probably find some kind of lead line container for it. Well, you just use lead paint. Oh yeah, lead paint. The safest and best of all materials. This is a pro lead paint podcast. And make sure to use asbestos brushes. But other than that, uh, due to a confluence of current events and a lot of Cold War history podcasts while I'm traveling, I've been playing lots of uh, Twilight Struggle on my phone. So that's about it. Nice. As for me, I'm running, continuing to run the two Eberron D&D campaigns. They have very dramatically separated plot lines at this point, um, since one of them succeeded in defending against an assassination attempt, and the other one participated in said assassination attempt. And so they're off doing two different things. One of them is searching for lycanthropes in a city with a new party member who's a paladin of the Church of the Silver Flame, while the other one was escorting somebody on an airship and the airship got attacked and crashed and they managed to pull off an amazing bit of like magic and artifice shenanigans to essentially trigger an emergency landing. And so the airship didn't break apart on hitting the ground or anything. Everybody on board survived with only minor bruising. Now they just have to, you know, trek two or three days out of the woods and back to civilization. Sounds fun. All kinds of opportunities for random encounters in there. (laughs) Oh yeah, the the session ended with them being assaulted by, I guess, flock would be the term, of griffins. So they're going to have fun with that. Yeah, I don't know what other thing than flock would be good for griffins. I mean, they're half lion, so a pride, maybe? I feel like, yeah, pride could be pretty appropriate. (laughs) A murder of griffins? (laughs) The crow version of griffins. (laughs) A murder of griffins. (laughs) 
actually, I like that. It, it They're crows and panthers, like black panthers. Yeah, that could be pretty cool. Note to self, add that to future games. Lewis, have you done anything related to the hobbies and board games and that sort of stuff in the last week? I tend to play fewer um, miniatures games than the two of you. I, as I as I mentioned, I I have spent a decent amount of time playing Keyforge. Um, I have a good local group in the city that I live in, and some really nice board game cafes to uh, to host events. Um, so I went to the first one of those in a few months this week. Um, I came in dead last in the tournament, but uh, you know, full disclosure, but. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Was it a reversal tournament? It was not a reversal tournament. It was it was straight Aww. ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, my 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 deck took a little bit of time to click in in uh, my mind for how its uh, unique set of attributes work together. But I, I suppose we'll get to how that what, what all that means later on in the podcast. I think that's as good a segue as we've ever gotten. So let's start talking about Keyforge. We're going to forge some keys. Yay! So Keyforge is a collectible card game created by Richard Garfield and published by Fantasy Flight Games. It was first released in November of 2018. If you've listened to our episode on collectible card games, or CCGs, you might recognize the name Richard Garfield. He was also the lead designer of Magic the Gathering. If you haven't listened to your episode, I suggest doing so because, well, we're talking about a CCG, and that's an entire episode about all the CCGs. And it will give you a good history of sort of the how collectible card games got to where they are now. I talked forever. Keyforge was designed in part to remedy issues that had been noticed and remarked upon in previous CCGs, and to take advantage of some new technologies that didn't exist when the games were first created and started to become popular. The biggest move in this direction from both of the fixing stuff and taking advantage of technologies is that it is a unique deck game. Thanks to advances in variable data printing and computer algorithmic like design things, every single deck in the game has a different algorithmically generated composition name, and card back. There is no deck building element in Keyforge. The cards you get in the deck that you purchase can only be used in that deck. Can't switch them around, can't buy more cards to adjust the deck. Thank God. Each 36 card deck is unique and cannot be changed. They are fairly inexpensive, so you just end up buying a bunch of decks rather than a bunch of random cards that you then try to like swap into a deck but it does sort of remove one of the big barriers to entry which is how do i create a good deck why can't i buy this card that everyone wants oh it's because it's 200 dollars. the unique feature mitigates the expense and difficulty of deck building in games like magic the gathering or Yu-Gi-Oh or pokemon the play style of Keyforge is also a little different. Unlike many other CCGs, where the goal is to use resources to activate or play creatures and abilities and then directly attack your opponent, Keyforge is focused on, well, forging keys. You win the game when you forge three keys. 
cards in your hand are all free to play for the most part, and then are used once they're in the play area to gather amber, which is the game's resource. That resource can then be spent to forge keys. Forge it up. All the cards in the game belong to a house. This is a system sort of similar to the colors of Magic the Gathering or the types in a deck of Pokemon. Or whatever factions or divisions other CCGs have. Each house has a certain style of play and synergies within their cards and with other houses. Each 36-card deck consists of 12 cards from three different houses. And each set of the game, of which there have been, what, four or five? There have been five sets. Each set has seven houses? I think. Something like that. Yes, each set has seven houses, that uh, of which each deck will have three. And there's a total of 11 houses that have been released so far. So as sets come out, houses kind of have been swapped in and out so that each set of new cards does something a little different. We'll talk about what makes the houses unique and what makes the sets unique in a little bit. But the gameplay itself is pretty similar to a lot of other CCGs. It's played in turns. On a turn, a player first forges a key if they have the resources to do so then selects a single house that they're going to play that turn. Then they can play cards of the selected house, use creatures that belong to the house, trigger artifacts or abilities that are related to that house, so on and so forth. At the end of the turn, everything that's been used is refreshed, untapped in magic terms, and you draw cards up until your hand is full. Creatures that you have out in play have a couple of basic actions. They can attack other creatures, they can reap, which is the way you generate resources for the most part. Or if they have a special ability printed on their card, they can do that. One of the features I really like about Keyforge is that there is no out-of-turn play. Or on a turn, only the active player will make decisions. If they have a card that says your opponent plays all creatures from their hand, the active player will decide where on the battlefield those creatures are played. Not the person who whose cards it was, the active player. This is kind of nice because it means there's no counterspelling like in Magic, no reactive turns, none of that. Only one person has to make decisions in a given turn. And it speeds up the game quite a bit, in my opinion, because you never have to wait for your opponent to do something on your turn. There's no there's no response phase. The response phase is you wait until your own turn, and then you do, get to do all the things you want to do. Makes life a lot easier. The only thing that can really happen with opponents' cards uh, on on your turn is if they have some passive effect that depends on the board state. Say, for example, like they're if they say when a creature dies, its owner gains an amber that uh that other player would be gaining amber for their creatures dying i believe that's a soul snatcher passive effects and the like will trigger but the only person making a decision is the active player the passive effects will all trigger automatically the only person making decisions is the active player so you, things happen 
and only one player has to make decisions. There's never a, I play this card, are you going to respond to it kind of thing. It's always, I play this card, then I play the next card, then I do all these things, and then I end my turn. This is, I think, an improvement on Magic the Gathering where, in especially in online games of Magic the Gathering, when you play a card, your opponent has to, like, hit a button to say, I'm not going to do anything to that card. Play your next card. Yeah, that was one of the issues with uh, the original form of Magic the Gathering online was that you had to manually acknowledge every single step in an action that your opponent was taking. And, oh man, did it take forever. Uh, fortunately, with Arena, they've kind of streamlined that a little bit, and you also get a timer, and you get, I think, 15 seconds to make a decision if you don't immediately click a response. Um, so that at least has sped the game up, but not having to wait on your opponent for Keyforge definitely makes things a lot faster. Yes, and I feel like it's a really smart design decision as well, because while it limits the design space somewhat in that reactionary effect cards aren't as viable, it streamlines a lot of the gameplay and removes a lot of weird potential conflicts. Um, Magic the Gathering has a whole thing about the stack, where if I counterspell your thing and you counterspell my thing and then you counterspell, and it just goes back and forth and then you have to resolve that in a specific order. Keyforge doesn't have that. You resolve what's played in what the order it's played. There's a deck that I've been using that's based on healing, playing creatures, and effects that happen when those creatures do things. And I'll get like 20, 30 effects on the stack. And it even with the computer, it takes so long for that action to process that I'm like, there's no way this game, this deck would be remotely playable in person because you would run out of time with how long your opponent was taking to resolve all these effects. It's nuts. Yeah, exactly. And Keyforge doesn't have that. Uh, doesn't have it anywhere to that extent. There are some weird edge cases with Keyforge where people have built, where people have found decks that do ridiculous things, but most of those decks have been errated out of the game. Specifically in the first set of the game, the Call of the Archons set, there was kind of an issue where you could basically an infinite loop of drawing all the cards from your deck into your hand and then playing cards and discarding cards and immediately drawing them back up because you would get a thing where wherever you played a card, you would draw some ludicrous number of additional cards. Yeah, I've gone up against a deck like that where they were able to draw their entire deck into their hand and then essentially repeat that loop until they won. And it was interesting. I couldn't say it was fun to play against because, I mean, at that point you're not really playing a game, but I was like, this is an interesting thing that wouldn't happen in other games, I think. Yes, and it can't happen in... Uh, Keyforge anymore as they have errated one of the cards that caused it to no longer work quite that way. Yeah, this was in the very first set. I think it was one of the first couple of competitive events that we went to. Yes. I played against one of those decks as well. Yeah, there, there are a few um, instances in the game still where potentially the agency of the other player could be dramatically reduced to the point where they really can't play things. 
that are still left in the game. But yeah, those those kinds of turns where the where your opponent is just able to cycle through their entire deck and like play their entire deck are uh, that those specific cards have been reduced and i think it i think it improves play and makes play a little bit more even because there was a there was yeah there was a point where you could be paying like two hundred dollars or i don't know i was just throwing that number out there like you'd be paying hundreds of dollars for one of those uh for one of those decks to then enter into your local store tournament and that makes it kind of no fun for other people. So I'm I'm pretty glad that they wound up errataing those particular like two or three cards and making the game a bit more even. There were some sure win decks initially, and they have adjusted the game pretty well to avoid those. Actually, I ran into two of those. One of them, he just won immediately. He got the thing off and just drew all his cards and had stuff that let him forge keys out of sequence and just won. The other one didn't have the forge keys out of sequence, and I had a card that if I had drawn it into my hand would have flipped the entire game and caused me to win, but I just didn't draw it before he finished the game, which was kind of sad. I, I really wanted to do that. In any case, that was the first set. They have adjusted and sort of kept an eye on the potential for that to happen, although with algorithmically generated decks the odds of something like that turning up are potentially a little higher even than in a normal game where there's deck building. It's a computer. Shenanigans happen. I would say the mechanic that remains that um, could potentially reduce another player's agency is the ability of some cards to keep them from playing a certain house. And if you strategically know like which houses they have in their hand, um, you can potentially... Uh, lock down a game that way and have a, a particular route to victory. But yeah, those are those are pretty fringe cases now, and they're a little bit more kind of relegated to specific cases within a specific game and the deck you're playing against. Yeah, I had an issue once where there was a card that uh, there were cards that caused you to not fill your hand up with as many cards, and there was another one that meant you could only play a certain number of cards each turn or a certain number of like creatures each turn and both of those were active and i couldn't draw enough stuff or discard enough stuff to really get new things out so i was just stuck yep um able to do very little on each of my turns and i lost that game but didn't feel that bad and my opponent won quickly so and also, if my opponent hadn't gotten those cards off right at the beginning, I probably would have been able to deal with it. In any case, the game has a couple of other neat features. One of them is the Master Vault app. Every single deck comes with a QR code printed on the like deck list card. And those QR codes can be linked to an app that Fantasy Flight Games has created that tracks your decks, how many times you've won in a tournament, and, you know, other stats and features of your decks. This means that you can, you know, look at your decks, see how good they are, how bad they are, how many wins you've gotten, how many losses you've gotten, and it also allows them to sort of nerf certain decks by adding chains 
Chains are a sort of metagame feature that can slow down deck progression by causing you to draw fewer cards. There are also cards within the game that are usually pretty powerful, and using them will cause you to gain chains in the game, and then slow you down in the next couple of turns. Very, very good tournament decks will start tournament events with a number of chains on them, and the app, which you know you can use to list all your decks and stuff, helps manage that and helps game stores who can access a tournament organizer backend to track this as well. It's actually a really, really slick setup for the most part. I've only had a couple of issues with it with game stores, and a lot of that had to do with them having really cheap webcams on the computer they were using to run the event. Yeah, I've usually seen it where, um, so when you open up uh, the pack that has the deck in it, the deck is encased in another layer of plastic wrap. And sometimes the reflective surface of the plastic wrap and the specific lighting of the game store might uh, affect how easy it is to read the QR code. That's like the most common issue that I've I've seen. Yeah, the one I've seen was the very cheap camera and poor game store lighting meant that even with the thing, they would sometimes have a hard problem with that. But again, that, that that's more of an issue with the game store needing to put in more lights and not be such a um, weird dark place that's the essence of game stores though weird and dark (laughs) i don't know i think i think our favorite game stores in portland are all pretty well lit for the most part the the local one to me at least is very well lit and very like clean and i'm really looking forward to them having event space once all the pandemic restrictions are lifted at the end of next month The seven houses that came in the original set were Brobnar, Dis, Logos, Mars, Sanctum, Shadows, and Untamed. Each of these houses did something different, did something special and unique and cool, and we're going to talk about them. Starting with Brobnar. The Brobnar house is made up of goblins and giants and ogres and tends to be focused on larger creatures and direct damage. Smash. And a lot of fighting stuff. It is perhaps most similar to Red in Magic, the Gathering. Yeah, Brobnar deals in, uh, as Troy mentioned, damage. Uh, So, for example, you might have a creature like a troll where if it has been dealt damage... When it uses its reap effect, in addition to gaining an amber from reap, it would heal three damage that had been dealt to it. Um, another another uh, type of creature might be one that uses a has a fight effect. So when it is used to fight another creature, it could uh, say gain an amber when it fights. There's a card that does that, or it. Um, there's a card called fire spitter that deals damage to all of your opponent's creatures. So uh, those kinds of things. A lot of it's a very fighty house to to use a specific word. Yes, I would say it's probably the most fighty house in that it has the most effects that are based purely on fighting. And it also tends to have a lot of large, strong creatures, but not a lot of ways to protect them. Its stuff gets out, it fights, it dies. 
also a lot of ambient effects that uh, reward fighting, like uh, cards where if you kill an opponent's creature, you gain an amber. Um, the next house is Dis. Dis is kind of demons, very purplish demons rather than like r- r- red demons, but they're sort of eldritch horrors. A lot of its effects are sort of negative status aspects debuffs if you would it also has some like just anti everything abilities and most of its creatures are not super strong but not the weakest for the most part well one of its classic cards is hand of dis which just kills an enemy creature or gateway to dis which kills all the creatures on the table it also has some other things that just negatively affect what your opponent can do on their turn. So, um, yeah, for Dis, like a a classic Dis card is going to affect the board state of the game on, uh, on say the next turn. One could, uh, one of the classic cards is control the weak, where if you play that as a one-time action on your turn, then you get to dictate which house your opponent picks. And uh, some of the other ones that are, uh, some of the other mechanics that Dis started to exploit in later sets, especially, would be the ability to purge a card. So uh, this removes a card from the game. Um, It's no longer able to cycle through the deck and the discard pile. Uh, Dis is quite fun, I find, although it can be a real annoying to play against because... It's a debuff set. Uh, probably the closest thing it has in other games, it's kind of similar to Black in Magic the Gathering terms. Yeah, that would that works. Though it is not as directly focused on some of the things that Black does in Magic the Gathering. It just, that's the most similar. And the next of the houses is Logos. Yay! Logos is cyborgs and robots and scientists and that sort of stuff. Yes, mad scientists. Lots of mad scientists in Logos. And high technology. Logos creatures tend to be either really weak or surprisingly strong, but not good at fighting. Their abilities are some of the most entertaining in the game. They have a lot of internal buff kind of things. A lot of stuff that lets you draw more cards or that might let you search your deck for a card or that just do direct actions to play more things and keep stuff going. They also have a couple of interesting abilities that reduce how much amber it costs to forge a key or increase how many cards you draw at the end of your turn. They're a very self-sufficient kind of supporting Another um, mechanic that's associated with Logos, at least in my mind, um, certainly other houses have this as well, but is the the mechanic of archiving. So on each turn, you have a hand size limit. It's typically six. It could be modified by other cards in the game or chains that uh, you have on your, your player. But archiving essentially sets cards aside uh, so you, you put them in your archive and you can choose to draw them up into your hand at the beginning of your turn. Logos sort of capitalized on that in 
especially the first set, but then has continued to do so in the other sets. Yeah, in the first set, they were perhaps the only house that really did anything fun with Archive. Mars did a little bit, but we'll get to them. Yeah, I had a, one of my decks did a lot of fun archiving stuff. Mars did a little, but it wasn't so much for themselves as uh, Logos was, where Logos would constantly archive stuff you don't want to use right now, but might in the future. Yeah, and the the archive... I think Logos also has an interesting mechanic where they can use your archive to uh, control the board state, like uh, a very classic Logos card that appears in later sets, but I, I think captures their flavor, is this card called uh, Edie. It's a creature. And Edie, when played, will allow you to archive a card, but Edie will also increase the cost of your opponent, uh, your opponent's keys on their next turn um, to... Uh, based on the number of cards in their archive in your archive yeah so archive play it's a logos thing the next house is ed's favorite mars mars i love mars and it makes me so sad that they're kind of not the greatest house in the set but i just love everything about the art and the flavor and what they do even if it's not that great yeah, so Mars is based on, like, classic green-skinned, bug-eyed Martians with ray guns and spaceships and death rays and all that fun stuff. Mars has a lot of internal synergies. They do a lot of different things, but al almost all of it is based on having other Mars cards. Their creatures can be really cool, but they almost always are better if you have other Mars cards triggering them or doing stuff based off of them or so on and so forth. And this can be kind of difficult since you only ever have 12 cards belonging to a specific house in each deck. It can be somewhat difficult to get enough Mars cards into play to do all of their fun effects. And they also have a lot of cards that rely on you having cards from Mars in your hand to either reveal them or just to increase the number of cards. So you can also, you can use those effects, but at the same time, if you're having to play cards, the ones that are looking at stuff in your hand are not going to be as useful. So it's a little bit of a balancing act versus how much do you want to play versus how many do you want to keep in your hand to let the Mars effects go. Yes, and like Logos, Mars creatures tend to be on the end of being extremely weak, but with annoying effects, or extremely powerful, and kind of just there to fight stuff. You mean fun effects? I mean annoying effects. Mars has some very annoying effects. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you on that one. Mars has some very annoying effects, and it's only really balanced out by the fact that they're kind of hard to play. You mean you don't like all of your creatures being locked up in the zoo? And then me doing that like three times? I do not. <laughs> no. No, thank you. I much prefer the next house we're going to talk about. Sanctum. Ugh. My least favorite house. Sanctum are knights and angels and paladin-y kind of guys. 
they are typically armored and depicted in art as wearing armor, holding like glowing weapons, that kind of stuff. Their Magic the Gathering equivalent would kind of be white. Yeah. But they don't do all the same things that white does. It's just that's kind of their aesthetic. Their big feature is armor. Other houses get armor, but armor reduces the damage that they get take the first time they're hit each turn by a certain amount. And so it can be very important to... Ha- Creatures with armor are just much harder to take out. They're harder to damage. They're harder to finish off. And Sanctum has a lot of effects that give more creatures armor and make more creatures... They're very defensive, for the most part. I really like Sanctum. I like the way they play. Yeah, they've, they've got some fun stuff. They have some cool, weird options. Um, what is it? Knights of the Round Table, the Holy Quest, something like that? Uh, oh, ep- ep- Epic Quest. Yeah. They have a card that sort of allows you to do stuff out of sequence and gives you a chance to win the game or forge keys. And it's based entirely on how many knights you have in your deck. Yeah, so so Epic Quest is it's it's a cool mechanic. Some cards in Keyforge will allow you to forge a key out of turn. In the case of Epic Quest, it's a great example of one that has an effect that has a lot of contingencies that are really hard to pull off. So in the case of Epic Quest, I, I think it needs you need to play seven Sanctum cards in a turn, and it will give you a key. Um, and the limitation there is that you can only have six cards in your hand under most normal circumstances. So it becomes challenging to meet the requirements of Epic Quest, but the payoff is that it puts you further ahead in the game. So these are kind of colloquially known as key cheats. Sanctum also has a fun thing, which is the horsemen in the first set, which were... Uh forgot about the horsemen four creatures the horsemen of death the horsemen of pestilence horsemen of war horsemen of plague no war famine pestilence death it's the four horsemen of mythology except they're riding motorcycles they're riding like hover motorcycles or motorcycles depending yeah it's like vaguely warhammer 40k-esque <laughs> It is a little Warhammer 40k-esque. The cool thing about them is if the algorithm gives you one of them, it gives you all of them. And they have neat effects, including the Horseman of Death, whose thing is he lets you draw from your discard pile any of the other horsemen that have been killed already. And each one does something different and affects everybody in play. And it's kind of a cool synergistic effect, but they're not that good in the overall turn of the game, they're just cool to have. They're just, they're more annoying than anything. Yes, I would say, I would agree with that. Yeah, they're not going to make your deck, like, way better than everyone else's deck. What they're going to do is they're going to add some flavor to it. It's it's going to be four of your Sanctum cards, our horsemen, and that is going to be a, a factor of how your deck plays, and they may play well with the other cards in your deck, or they may play terribly with the other cards in your deck under you know the circumstances of the game that you're playing. But that flavor remains. So that's a, it's 
I think that's one of the cool things about having these these rare cards in Keyforge is they can dramatically change like how a particular deck plays. Yes, and the next house, the next flavorful house of the original set is Shadows. Shadows is elves and shadow creatures and thieves, humans. It's like elves and weird fairies. Elves, fairies, humans, and they're all thieves. The The core component of Shadows is that they steal amber or they capture amber or they perform some sort of weird sideways damage effect. Shadows is a very annoying house to deal with because... If your opponent has shadows, they're going to do stuff about controlling the amber on the table. That is to make the resource you need to forge a key harder to acquire. By taking it away from you, by slowing down your ability to get it, by just outright preventing you from doing it, or making it so that when you forge a key, they just get all the amber you used. Shadows has a lot of cool tricks... But none of its characters are particularly good at combat. So there's plenty of ways to get around it. Yeah, anecdotally, Shadows was kind of the hallmark of decks that were considered the most powerful in the first set. Certainly there are exceptions to that, but there were some cards that were extremely hard to deal with in a tournament setting. Uh, one in particular was called Bait and Switch, where if your opponent has more amber than you, you could steal one. But then that effect would repeat. So you you would essentially wind up... Uh, you could take your opponent's big pile of amber that they were about to use to forge a key and allocate a lot of that back to you, and it would dramatically change the course of the game. You could go from being very behind playing this card and then being very much ahead. That mechanic has been toned way back. It only triggers once now. I think my favorite was one that would steal all but six of your opponent's amber. Yes. Uh, Too much to protect, I think. Which was the card I had in that game where my opponent generated a huge pile of amber and then would basically win in three turns. And I knew that if I could draw too much to protect, I would be able to win. But I was unable to draw it. Because I would have taken all but six of his amber and then stolen a little bit more so that he couldn't forge keys in the next couple turns. (laughs) It did not happen, sadly. And then the last house in the original two sets is untamed the best description of untamed is that it's green from magic the gathering as a green player in magic the gathering i'm a fan it's big and stoppy yeah it is wild beasts creatures witches fairies to some extent it's a lot of creatures which range from being fairly strong to very strong although they tend to be more in the middle a lot of them have buff abilities that make them stronger or abilities that make them do certain things better i'd say that untamed is very focused on the creatures that it has it also has some fun abilities stuff that 
causes stuff causes creatures or artifacts to go back to their hand or the deck of the player that has them and some other sort of tricky stuff but for the most part it's creatures they have a lot of the the iconic key cheats are cards like key charge where you can the the text of the card is you will lose an amber but then you can forge a key at current cost so if you have seven amber normally the key cost is six then you can forge on your turn you know without having to without having to worry about waiting for the beginning of the next turn when your opponent might be able to steal things from you so that's that's a very classic untamed card yeah and they've got some really cool abilities and some very cool cards that just make them hard to deal with if you don't have a way to murder everything on the board because if they get five or six creatures out they can reap every turn and get enough amber to forge a key Right, or some of the other cards that allow you that they have either a creature that will be out on the board or a card that you can play that affects the rules for that one turn, you can gain an amber every time that you that you play a creature. And so you can get you have a handful of, of, of these untamed creatures, you play that card, you play the untamed creatures, and you play your key cheat, and then there you go. And those were all the houses that were in the first set and in the second set. So, since the game came out, there have been four waves of expansion sets, featuring new cards, new mechanics, and new houses. Uh, The first of these was Age of Ascension, which came out in May of 2019. It featured the same houses as the first set, and was more about just new cards, more so than any new mechanics or things of that nature. It did introduce two new mechanics. Um, These are called Alpha and Omega. Alpha is a card that has typically some kind of powerful effect and has to be played as the first card of your turn. So you, you would play that from your hand. And if you like have, sometimes there'll be a card that will allow you to play another card. Like you couldn't use that to play an Alpha card. That effect would just not resolve. But so the the alpha card comes out first and the omega card is the opposite of that. It has some powerful effect, but you can no longer take actions after that. Like it ends your turn. That was AOA's big thing. Yeah. And that had some interesting effects. There was also, I think, AOA had more effects that dealt with positioning of the cards on your battlefield. Um, Because you lay out your creatures in a line left to right. And you can place a new creature on either the left flank or the right flank. And Age of Ascension had some creatures that did certain things if they were the rightmost or the leftmost creature. That's right. I think it might also have had a mechanic called Deploy, where you get to choose to drop a card into the middle of the battle line. I remember Deploy being useful. It's an it's a nice mechanic. It I think it really capitalized on some of the the kind of simple gameplay elements of of Keyforge without like adding new rules that were unnecessarily complicated or like yeah it was it was a it was an elegant expansion I thought. The third set of Keyforge was called Worlds Collide and it was released in November 2019, about a year after the game had first come out. This marked kind of a big change because This was the first time new houses had been introduced and old houses were rotated out. Mars and Sanctum were not in this set. My poor Mars. 
Instead, there were two new houses, the Saurian Republic, which is dinosaurs, and the Grand Star Alliance, or just the Star Alliance is what everyone calls it, which is the Federation from Star Trek. Very much so. (laughs) Even after all this time, I've still yet to get a uh, deck with dinosaurs in it. And so these two new houses had new effects. Worlds Collide introduced a number of new effects. Uh, I think the key ones were Exalt and Ward. Exalt was an ability where when a creature came into play or did was triggered in some way and exalted, you would place an amber from the common pool onto that creature. And when the creature dies, that amber goes to the person who killed it. Or it goes to the opponent's side. Exalting a creature would have different effects. Um, a creature may have an ability that says when there is amber on this creature, it gains extra defense. Or when there's amber on it, and it reaps, that amber goes into its own collection. So it just changed a lot of the play, and I think sometimes it feels like it sped up the game because it meant there was more resources in play at any given time. So so an important thing to note here is that having when we say we have an amber on a creature, if you kill that creature, it will go to your amber pool that you can use to forge keys. So this is important for a mechanic called capture, where a creature can essentially hold your opponent's amber on it until it is removed from the board. And then exalt as well from the common pool means you're you're drawing from the amber that hasn't been assigned to a player yet and uh, putting it on a creature. So Saurians kind of put themselves in a risky place. If they wind up getting killed and they have amber on them, it goes to your opponent but they're also maybe a little bit more powerful because of that amber that's sitting on them. Yes, and it also introduced a mechanic that plays into this, which is Ward, which essentially puts a shield token on a creature, and when that creature would be damaged or destroyed, instead you remove the shield token. This plays into the thing of you want creatures that can gather amber or take it away from your opponent, And then you don't want them to die. So you would ward them in some manner. Um, Saurians do a lot of that. They have a lot of things that are based on exalt or capture and amber control. The Star Alliance, on the other hand, is about playing well with others. Many of their cards are based entirely upon assisting some other card that you have already in play or that trigger abilities of creatures that are in play, or based on how many houses you have in on the board at any time. They're very helpful, like the, Star, like the Federation from Star Trek. I will say one thing about uh, the Saurians. Um, they have the best puns of any house. There's a car- card called Six Semper Tyrannosaurus, and I, I love it so much. <laughs> Yes, the Saurian Alliance names are all basically dinosaur and Latin puns, because they are Roman dinosaurs. They are they are Roman dinosaurs. It's delightful. It, it, it's amazing. Um, and Six Semper Tyrannosaurus is great. Uh, Velociraptor, fantastic. Oh, yes, the Velociraptor. <laughs> They're just fun all around, and the Saurian Republic is a lot of people's favorite house aesthetically because of this. I don't really like how they play, but I find them super amusing. 
The next set was released in July 2020, and it was called Mass Mutation. Again, the houses were slightly changed up. Brobnar dropped out, Sanctum came back in, and Mass Mutation focused on another new thing, which was Mutants. It added different versions of other cards and cards with the mutant keyword and did a lot of things related to that. Lewis, were there any other cool mechanics involved in this one? I'm not entirely sure. You got like the two card monster creatures. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the two card monsters are interesting. So you have to have both cards in your hand to play to play it. And they typically have some ability that's well beyond what you would have for uh, for a normal creature. Um, they have a lot more power, so they're harder to kill. They have some great reap or fight ability that makes them kind of a high value target because you know you, your opponent doesn't want you like doesn't want your giant tyrannosaurus like stomping on all their creatures. Um, so those were kind of fun, yet another way to add a little bit more flavor to an individual deck. But the big thing in Mass Mutation were each, uh, were the, 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 the mutants, which were upgrade tokens or upgrade symbols that could be added randomly to a card. And it, it might be that when you play that card, you also, in addition to that card's effect, get to deal a damage to a creature, or you get to capture an amber onto one of your creatures, or playing that card just gives you an additional amber. So it's sort of a way to to add a little bit of extra flavor to the cards in a deck without actually substantively changing the identity of those cards. Yes, and it's important to note that this was something that could only be done in this sort of unique game where each deck is algorithmically generated because each of these cards would have this symbol added or the cards would have the symbol added to them at random depending on what's in your deck so it's not that all of the cards that have this name in the entire game get it no only the ones in this deck that have the symbol added to it yeah and it just made each deck even more unique than they had been before it's a total random number generator flex. And that leads us to the most recent set, Dark Tidings, which was released in March 2021, so about a year ago, and it added a new house called Unfathomable, which is ocean-themed. That's their, their fish people. It's mermen. Fish people. Mermaids. Act literal fish sometimes. Merfolk. Merfolk. I'm not sure what their big focus is. I haven't played a huge number of games with them. Yeah, so they replaced Dis in that set as the house that kind of controls things. Their big mechanic is that they can exploit the uh, exhaustion mechanic. So when you have a card that's tapped at the end of a turn, they tend to have abilities that trigger based off of whether you have cards that are tapped or exhausted and, or your opponent does, like they might be able to destroy a creature that is exhausted. Um, the other thing that changed in this set is every deck now comes with one additional card 
which is the same for every deck. It's the Tide card. So during the game, you can change the Tide. The Tide, if it's, it's a sort of like... It's a like up, down, north, south kind of thing. Right. It's, a, it's an environmental change that provides certain effects to you and certain effects to your opponent based on which way the card is facing. And so once you've triggered the tide once, it's either high for you and low for your opponent or vice versa. And so these these unfathomable cards tended to trigger whether uh, they, they do different things based on whether this tide mechanic is high or low. It does change kind of the flavor of the games. A lot of the cards in the set, not just from this house, but from other houses as well, have effects based on whether the tide is high or low. Uh, making that kind of the big mechanical impetus of this particular set. Um, it, in terms of playing with other sets, though, the this Tide mechanic, you know, it, it triggers for only cards within this set, but there are still ways that you can interact with the Tide card from other sets. So they've successfully added a new mechanic to the game, and they've come up with ways for that Tide card to... Uh, to continue to uh, be used with an older deck. Yes, it's a uh, it's fairly well integrated, and that's all the sets so far. Uh, we'll talk about the future of it in a little bit, but first we're going to talk about organized play and events with Keyforge, because Fantasy Flight Games has had a history of doing pretty good with organized events and tournament play. And that sort of thing. They did great with X-Wing, which we've talked about. They did pretty good with uh, Star Wars Armada and Legion and even Imperial Assault. Before the pandemic, they had a lot of things set up for tournaments and events. Uh, these would start with store events. There were things from the very release of the game. There were store events with prize kits, including uh, all sorts of things that I have gotten a lot of stuff from. Uh, tokens, extra cards that are used to help track things, whether that be chains that you might have on a deck or power tokens. Fantasy Flight Games loves tokens in their games. So lots of tokens were involved. Um, keys, they created tokens, uh, some metal, some plastic for the keys that you would need to forge in a game and you could win these as prizes. More decks was always a prize that events would have. I got a playmat once from winning in a tournament. Their support for this was very strong, and the app helped to make it easy for stores to run these sort of events. Uh, they also had a thing called the Vault Tour, which was a basically official sanctioned tournament series that they would have at like taking place at other conventions or events where you could go, you could play and stuff, you could win prizes and they would have a prize wall where based on your sort of score in the app and how many decks you had purchased, you could spend a current Amber from this app that you downloaded to get certain prizes up to and including like a gaming chair yeah, I think there was, yeah, I, I can't remember how much it was. It was some ridiculous amount, and it was kind of funny because 
the game was so new that no one had achieved this amount yet, but there was still this kind of this option of getting this thing later on in the future. A branded gaming chair. And it was kind of cool because you could get Amber from buying decks and you could also get it from winning tournaments or just participating in tournaments. So it encouraged you to buy more, yes, but also to play the game and to go places and play it with people, which was kind of a nice touch. It was also nice that it would show you and track it. Since the pandemic, they have not held these events. They kind of have all been paused or postponed or TBD since the beginning of 2020. Uh, hopefully this year they might start coming back. Would be a nice thing to see. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I, I would love to see that. There are there were a few different types of events that stores could hold. The basic one was just Archon, which was people bring decks and then play those decks against each other. And it's either single elimination, double elimination, Swiss, whatever tournament setup the stores prefers. Yeah, so for Archon, yeah, you bring you bring your own deck, and this is where the chain mechanic that we alluded to earlier matters a lot because when you bring a deck and you start to win, all your victories will be converted to chains, which means you draw fewer cards at the beginning of turn of your first turn, and you have to you have to uh, you 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 come in at a slight disadvantage with that deck. So this this kind of keeps the playing field a little more level. So you don't have one deck that completely just runs away with everything week in, week out. Um, there's also Reversal. Reversal's fun. Which is another style of play where you play using your opponent's deck. This encourages people to bring decks that perhaps they wouldn't normally see play with. Because, well, you don't want to bring something super good, but also... If, you, if everyone brings something bad, then it gets real hard for anyone to win. Right. Part of the beauty of these algorithmically generated decks is that you have sort of a bell curve of uh, like the statistical performance of the decks. And there are, there are websites that track a whole lot of metrics on, on these, these different, the different cards. But you, you just have some decks that have whatever for whatever reason the combination of cards in them is is it just doesn't quite click and those are really fun to bring for reversal they're just very amusing games but part of the beauty of it is even with good decks sometimes you wind up getting just a card that doesn't quite fit and there are certainly some cards that are hard to trigger under normal game circumstances and so People tend to not to dislike them or like, oh man, I got this card in my deck, but hey, the deck could still be great. And then I think the last mode or event type, the, the most last common one is sealed, which is incredibly simple. You just get a brand new unopened deck and that's what you have to play with. I like sealed. It's a good one. I think it's the most fair and it's one of the most fun. And typically the entry cost is... The cost of the deck. Yes, the local board game cafe that I have gone to in the past, they like to run sealed. It's always a lot of fun 
you can also combine sealed with reversal and that that can be pretty that can be pretty amusing there was one time when someone drew this just incredibly well put together competitive deck and so they wound up losing to their own deck the entire tournament they came in dead last and then the next week they brought it for one of the archon events and just cleaned up <laughs> that's funny that's pretty entertaining uh, have to say the future of keyforge is kind of in question right now they haven't had an, a set since well they haven't had a set in the last year and because covid they haven't done a lot of events and a lot of organized play and stuff, so it's kind of in a weird place. They have announced a new set coming out called Winds of Exchange, which will feature a new house, and so there's presumably going to be some interesting stuff there. However, Fantasy Flight Games has also said that they've got some issues. The algorithm that they use to generate new decks is broken somehow. I, I don't understand exactly what caused this because they haven't told people exactly what caused it but they had to they're having to rebuild it from scratch which is presumably a pretty substantial undertaking and something that is going to hold them back from releasing new decks and new sets for a while which means the game it's still going it just hasn't picked up steam the way i think they would have preferred yeah, I think it will still have its hardcore followers, but there might be a, a little bit of uh, inertia at the very beginning, probably also related to the pandemic and getting people to come back into game stores and try new games. But hopefully this new set can be a nice kick. I'm hopeful that the new set is good, that it brings in new players, that we get back to where it was pre-pandemic, which was in a pretty good spot of drawing people into the game and you know i would go to events and see people people who weren't super hardcore just there to have fun and play some games which is what i kind of want in a game i feel like keyforge is better as a casual game than something like magic the gathering where it's requires a lot of work for it to be casual yeah and magic it's very specific just in how the game itself plays everything is very meticulously planned out. Whereas Keyforge, it's because of the random nature, you're just like, well, that's what I got. That's what I'm going to roll with. Yeah, if, if, if I think it's more casual, and I like that casual nature of it. It can be just very random what you wind up getting on a tournament. The, the, the things that p people will discover about the deck that they just open, like, oh, wow, it does this? That's wild. Yeah. And that's enjoyable, and I quite like it. And that's Keyforge, a game that I enjoy, that all of us here enjoy, and a game that, if you're interested, perhaps, in something a little more casual than Magic, a little more cheaper to enter, certainly, because you just need to buy a deck, and something that I think is going to be around for a while, at least, you might want to try. Until the algorithm breaks again. Uh, if you want to try it without having to buy stuff, there's a thing called The Crucible that you can Google and play online. I, I don't know how legal it is, but... It has not been shut down. 
it would be nice if they had an official an official uh fantasy flight online game for keyforge but also knowing their track record with anything online that's a bit sketchy they've said that they're interested in doing that and they want to work with a company that has done some magic the gathering related things but it's hasn't come out yet hasn't been made official at all so like you said their track record with online versions of games and companion apps has not been great i will say the keyforge companion app the master vault is generally pretty solid but it doesn't do much other than track things yeah that's all it needs to do it's not super taxing and with that, we only have one thing left to talk about on this podcast, and that is Board Game Corner. Ed, I believe you have something to say. Yeah, I uh, dusted one off special for Lewis, since I know that he, at least last time we played, was a fan of this game. Uh, Troy, I think you've cooled off on it a bit, but it's uh, Zombies from Twilight Creations. Woo! Zombies is a classic. <laughs> Yeah, it came out in the early 2000s, uh, kind of at the beginning of both the pop culture craze for zombies and the weird changeover between what board games were in the 90s and the board game renaissance that we've seen for the last 15 to 20 years. So it has kind of a combination of some of what we associate with modern board games, but also uh, some old mechanics that... They feel antiquated by our standards, but the game still works. The idea of the game is that you are trapped in a city with zombies and you're trying to escape via helicopter. You have a deck of tiles that have nine spaces on each of them, which include like streets and buildings and all that. You shuffle them together and then in theory, you're supposed to put the helicopter at the bottom of the deck so that the helicopter is the last card you draw. Uh, if you want a shorter game or one that's a little bit more unpredictable, you just shuffle the helicopter in with the rest of the deck. Uh, all the players start in the town, town square, and each player on their turn, they will draw a tile, place it so that it connects all the roads through the city. You'll roll your dice to move. You'll move your dude wherever you want to go to you know, beat up zombies, collect items and resources, and hopefully make your way to the helicopter and the first person to get to the helicopter is the winner of the game. It's pretty simple, even though it's been a while since I played it. I still remember almost the entirety of the rulebook. It's gone through a couple of editions. They had a Kickstarter recently that I think had new art and just included all of the expansions of the game, of which there are, I think, about 20 different expansions now. So the fact that they're still going with it, it's got some kind of audience, or the game is just so freaking cheap to produce that they just keep doing it because they can. There were a couple of spinoffs. There was one called Medieval, which was essentially the same game, but instead of trying to escape from a zombie apocalypse, you were in... It's the one where Ash goes back in time. Army of Darkness. Yeah. Army of Darkness. Yeah, it's basically Army of Darkness, so instead of fighting zombies, you're fighting skeletons in a castle. Uh, there was another one called Humans, which is a little bit more mechanically complex, and seems to, from reviews, be the superior game. But in that one, you're playing as the zombies, trying to eat as many humans as you can. And then there was another one called Martians, which 
just swapped out the zombies for an alien invasion, and other than that, it's almost the, the exact same game. This game has a special spot on my shelf because it was the first game that I bought for myself and was what introduced me to essentially modern board gaming. Um, it's got pretty nice artwork for the time. It's very campy looking. Uh, it's kind of a cross between Walking Dead, or not Walking Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Evil Dead. It's got a lot of jokes, pretty campy. And we got really deep into this game in college. We even tried introducing some like RPG aspects, uh, some new mechanics where there was a randomly placed helicopter key and the only person who could escape had to have the helicopter key and you could like fight the other players over it and all that. And uh, we must have been ahead of the curve on that one because they eventually did come out with an expansion called Dead Time Stories, which added in some characters and a bunch of new scenarios. Uh, I think last time Lewis and I played, uh, it was a Christmas scenario where you had to keep the Christmas tree in the town center lit and the zombies hated the tree and were constantly trying to like tear it down and turn the lights off. So I remember we played that for one of our holiday get togethers. That was pretty fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's more of a beer and pretzels type game compared to something like Zombicide, which I mean, Zombicide itself is fairly light rules-wise, at least from the couple of times that I've played it, but it's kind of been overshadowed by that, but it's one that I still really like. Yeah, I would say that it's very similar to Zombicide. It is the f game that came out first. Zombicide's big draw is that it has much nicer miniatures. Yeah, this one, it has little little plastic zombies. Didn't some of them glow in the dark? Yeah, there was a, a military expansion. It was, I think, the second one, which had a military base, and there were super zombies, and if a player played that card, it spawned a number of super zombies that were made of glow-in-the-dark plastic, and those ones you could only kill on a six. The big difference with Zombicide is the it's a larger, larger model scale, so the models are larger, they look more interesting, and it's co-op. So you're all working together instead of kind of trying to screw each other over. And Zombicide also has a more variety of scenarios in each box. It's not just get to the helicopter. You do a few different things. I think we'll talk about Zombicide as a as its own board game corner at some point. Probably. Yeah, Zombies is all about screwing over your opponents. Uh, we had one game in college where we essentially trapped one player in the flower shop for the entire game. And on the last turn, he found a car and just drove straight to the helicopter because we had all cleared the zombies away, but we'd all died and got sent back to the start after fighting with each other and or getting eaten. And so he just got into the car, drove to the helicopter and won the game after spending the better part of an hour trapped in one building because we kept forcing him back inside. <laughs> Sometimes all you have to do to win is just hang on. Pretty much. So yeah, that's Zombies. That's Zombies, and that is our episode. As always, thank you for listening. You can follow us on social media. We are at Knoll Country on Twitter. We are Knoll Country on Instagram. And we do not have a Facebook group for this podcast. Boo, Facebook. Boo. We are not in the metaverse. We are in the actual verse. The meat space. So-called reality. Ed, Lewis, got any advertisements? Anything you want to plug? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Adam Adness. Uh, it's been kind of light there lately, just 
because a lot of travel, not much is happening. But if you take a look at my page, uh, go ahead and buy one of our Null Country branded Matt Mercer effects pedals. Uh, you wire it directly to your players' chairs, and it will immediately uh, dissuade them of any unrealistic expectations for your D&D campaign. I like it. Is it a... Uh... What happens if you wire it to a guitar? Does it give you like a wah-wah effect or? Uh, it, just, it just starts uh, screeching out really heavy Cockney accents. Fair enough. Lewis, anything you want to plug? I will plug uh, the Queen and Rook Game Cafe in Philadelphia. It's a cool place. I like it a lot. All right. As always, thank you for listening. Go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>